3: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, top executives from Chevron, ExxonMobil, BP America and Shell will testify tomorrow before a House committee about the fossil fuel industry's role in promoting climate change disinformation. House Democrats plan to model the hearing on the Big Tobacco hearings of the 1990s and will examine whether Big Oil has misled Americans about the dangers of fossil fuels and prevented action on climate change. We'll preview the hearing, and we'll get the latest on efforts for accountability in California's Huntington Beach oil spill earlier this month. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. The CEOs of major oil companies will testify tomorrow before the House Oversight Committee about their role in spreading climate change disinformation. Committee Chair Representative Carolyn Maloney and Environment Subcommittee Chair Representative Ro Khanna have said, quote, "...public reporting indicates that these companies and their allies in the fossil fuel industry have worked to prevent serious action on global warming by generating doubt about the documented dangers of fossil fuels." For more, we're joined by Amy Westervelt, a climate journalist whose latest project is Rigged, an online archive and podcast about disinformation. Amy is also founder and executive editor of Drilled News, a climate accountability news source. Amy Westervelt, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So tomorrow's hearing, it's being called landmark and potentially blockbuster. Can you put in context for us just how unusual hearing like this is, where you have these oil executives coming before the committee to explain the way they've basically messaged their impact on climate change.
2: Yeah, it's pretty unusual, although, you know, we have seen it before with the tobacco companies, and then actually more recently with a lot of the social media companies, um, who are also on the hook for disinformation these days, (laughs) Um, you know, but, um, but I think that the the oil execs have not really had to answer this publicly for for some of their actions in the past. So it should be interesting to see how they handle that.
3: Yeah. Talk about what this is. So we have the heads of ExxonMobil, BP, Chevron, Shell. We've got the trade groups, American Petroleum Institute and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce coming in. Mm-hmm. Can you give us like some specific examples of climate disinformation that that spurred this committee to, to call these hearings?
2: Yeah, so what's really interesting about this is they have specifically limited it to looking at what these companies have been doing since 2015. So hmm. oftentimes when we hear about climate disinformation, it's it's you know, Exxon was doing research on climate change in the 70s, and there are multiple, you know, internal memos about exactly what we're going to see if fossil fuel use continues and what that means for both the world and the industry. Uh, You know, we know that BP has pushed the carbon footprint calculator to try to convince people that, you know, really it's all of our individual actions that are the problem. Um, And Shell, you know, was producing reports in the 90s about the risk of, of climate change too. But this time we're looking at 2015 to now. So what Ro Khanna has said, um, and we'll probably hear him say this today is that uh, he wants to look at specifically what they have been doing since they started promising shareholders and the public that they were actually going to take climate change seriously. Uh, So when we're looking at 2015 to now they've kind of moved away from the the classic science denial tactics and it's more about delaying action on climate so they're they're doing things like saying oh well it's going to be too expensive or you know transition is going to negatively impact poor and marginalized people or actually we're totally on top of things. That's a big one. They, they Mm -hmm. talk a mean game about how much they're investing in renewable energy and transition. But up until recently, you know, I don't think any oil company was investing more than 3% of their annual capital expenditures on anything but fossil fuel development. So he wants to look at, at that disconnect and how, um, how they're misleading not just the public but shareholders recently about, you know, how they've turned over a new leaf and they're actually going to take climate seriously now,
3: yeah. when you when you mention that, you're reporting in The Guardian about Darren Wood, CEO of ExxonMobil, saying that uh, he totally supports the Paris climate agreement to substantially reduce global pollution. But then there are these documents that showed that, his plan for the company is actually to increase its emissions by 17%. I'm guessing those That's are right. some of the examples. That's right.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the the entire oil industry as it's saying you know, okay, we're going to transition. We're going to be energy companies now and we're, you know, investing in carbon capture and algae biofuels and all these things. What their reports are saying, their quarterly reports and their annual reports and and what their um you know internal documents are saying is that they're investing in plastic that you know as as uh, people are using less fossil fuels for transportation and in residential sectors that they are um really leaning on this sort of third pillar of of petrochemicals and are seeing plastic as their big escape hatch so the idea that you know as concern about climate change increases that they are suddenly um, going to be investing in solar um, just is not proven out by what they're actually doing. Um, And and I suspect that will be, you know, coming to light in this hearing.
3: One of the most immediate things that spurred this or recent things that at least the committee noted was catching a former ExxonMobil lobbyist on tape. Can you just Mm -hmm. describe what happened there quickly?
2: Yeah, this was an incredible um, sting that the journalists at Unearthed, which is an investigative journalism project that's funded by Greenpeace in the UK, they um, had been trying to find senior level lobbyists within Exxon or who had recently left Exxon that they could um, that they could talk to to see if if they could really suss out the strategies that, that the the company has been using. And they found a couple of them and they posed as uh recruiters who were interviewing them for uh, other lobbying positions. And so they got them talking and, and really, you know, bragging as one would in an interview, maybe about how you know they'd pulled off all of these great feats for Exxon and, and really laying out exactly how they had obstructed climate policy and how you know they go to their guy Joe Manchin every week and um and and you know are how they're trying to to block any kind of of regulation on emissions and and you know that they're going to embrace a carbon tax because you know that that sounds better but really we're never actually going to back a carbon tax so um it was i mean this video if people haven't seen it is is incredible of of these two very high level lobbyists i mean um Exxon tried to really distance itself from these guys after this stuff came out and say that, you know, uh, they didn't represent the company and oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. But they were both very high level um, executives in the company for quite mm-hmm. a while uh, before these these videos <laughs> came out. So, yeah. yes, I know that uh has said that that um, certainly prompted this investigation.
3: We're talking with Amy Westervelt, a climate journalist whose latest project is rigged an online archive and podcast about disinformation. We're also talking about the upcoming House Committee hearing on climate misinformation. Um, And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your thoughts on how the oil and gas industry talks about climate change? And do you think big oil bears responsibility for worsening or exacerbating climate change? There are a lot of things that have done that. What do you think big oil's responsibility is to all of this? 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. eight six six seven three three six seven eight six eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us forum at KQED So as you said, Amy at the beginning, this is being compared to the Big Tobacco Hearings. Just remind us what happened in nineteen ninety four at the Big Tobacco Hearings in case anyone needs anyone needs a refresher. <laughs>
2: Yeah, this the CEOs from the all of the major tobacco companies, you know, testified before Congress that they did not believe nicotine to be addictive. <laughs> and um and in subsequent years through both whistleblowers and um kind of ongoing investigations, uh it was discovered that in fact, not only did they know exactly how addictive nicotine was, but they were using that to Uh, make cigarettes more addictive and to sell more product. So that was a real kind of linchpin to eventually holding the tobacco industry accountable for misleading the public on smoking. And I think that there's, um, there's some sense that we might see something similar in these hearings although i i don't know you know i think i think people forget that the oil companies were actually co-defendants of the tobacco companies back then so this is not their first rodeo <laughs> and they are very well trained you know like these these executives are highly media trained they have been giving depositions in lots of litigation over the last several years around this stuff as well so i'm not sure that we'll see them make an obvious gap. <laughs> you know?
3: And remind me a little bit of the fallout for big tobacco after they basically lied under oath. And then what was the impact yeah. nationwide?
2: Yeah. So They ended up um, being investigated by the Department of Justice, and they also ended up um, being sued by the Attorney General of every state in the (laughs) Union and and the District of Columbia, um, which resulted in in the master settlement, um, which is you know tens of of billions of dollars paid out to the states to deal with the health costs of all these um, smoking related illnesses Uh, that. I think they're still paying on that. But, uh, you know, I've written about this. I think that there's a little bit of a, a danger to sort of overly glorify um, what sort of accountability was had at, yeah. that po- at that point in time. Because, you know, yes, I think um, smoking, of course, definitely fell out of favor in the U.S. and the tobacco companies were vilified and Uh, smoking decreased in the country and all these things. But in, you know, in the years from 2000 to 2020, tobacco companies' profits increased over 70%. They found massive export markets. Uh, They all got into vaping. And many of them are doing some of the same things in that industry that they, you know, were were, um, supposedly held accountable for. Uh, 20 years ago you know so um i think there's a real danger here to um to think that you know one fine or one embarrassing public moment will be um the silver bullet and and in fact i think there's a lot of of systemic reform that needs to happen to prevent any industry from misleading the public
3: It'll be interesting to see how the parallels play out and what parts of those parallels that you're drawing right there do. We're talking yeah. with Amy Westervelt. Uh, and actually, let me put that question out to the listeners as well, in addition to the others that I'd mentioned. What do you think of the comparison between big oil and big tobacco? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Congressman Rokano will actually join us right after the break, so stay with us for that. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera,
3: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're previewing tomorrow's House Committee hearing on climate disinformation with Amy Westervelt, founder and executive editor of Drilled News, a climate accountability news source. Her latest project is rigged, an online archive and podcast about disinformation. And joining us now is U.S. Congress member for the 17th Congressional District, Ro Khanna, chairman of the House Subcommittee on the Environment and member of the House Oversight Committee. Representative Khanna, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thank you for
3: having me. And so we were just talking before the break about these hearings that you will be very much front and center on. And I wanted to ask you, you have said in an interview that, you know, these companies and trade groups that are coming before you tomorrow have lied and that you have scores of evidence that they misrepresented to the American public the threat of climate change. So what is your goal for tomorrow's hearing, if you already know this?
5: To have the oil companies come clean and to commit to stopping disinformation. This is not something new. I mean, uh, Naomi Oreskes wrote a book, Merchants of Doubt, Merchants of Doubt, that documents all of this, uh, all of the misrepresentations by a big oil over the years, and researchers have known this. The reality is they've never had to answer uh, under oath in front of Congress. And so tomorrow they will have a choice. They can either come and lie uh, like the big tobacco oil executives did, uh, big tobacco executives did, and that's taking a big risk to lie to Congress under oath. Or they can come clean, admit the truth and commit to stopping disinformation.
3: Both admissions or lies could have a big ripple effect. What will you do with that information after they they talk to you about it, after they answer questions from you?
5: Well, my hope is that they won't lie. My hope is that they will be truthful. And if they are truthful, that is significant because it can uh, they could commit to stopping funding shadow groups that are engaged in disinformation. Uh, they can commit to uh, making sure they're auditing uh, groups that they're funding for climate disinformation. Uh, they can commit to correcting the record uh, of past statements that have been misleading. Uh, What are they going to do to to make up for uh, all of the the misleading information? So if we can uh, get them to commit to stopping climate disinformation, that would be an extraordinary win. Of course, there could be legislation that emerges from this as well. And one thing that when I talked to Naomi uh, Oreskes, who I really admire, has been one of the leading researchers on all of this, she said, well, the reality is not everyone's read my book. And uh, very few people in this country know that these oil companies – have engaged in distortion. So, if we can break through to the American public, it can start to shift the opinion of these companies and put more pressure on them to actually take action in tackling uh, the climate crisis.
3: So, so, these executives have agreed to appear in person. They haven't, though, Representative Connor, returned all the documents and communications that you requested. Do you plan to subpoena the executives for these documents?
5: There's just one clarification. They will be appearing, but remotely, because uh, under ah, COVID yes. rules, any witness is allowed to, to appear remotely. And uh, while they're flying off to everywhere else in the rest of the world, they're taking full advantage of the House rules to uh, appear remotely for, for the hearing. Uh, but uh, we have not gotten uh, as many documents. No, It was no coincidence that we got about 100,000 documents uh, uh, three days, uh, two days before the hearing, uh, which is the games that Uh, these companies play. Uh, But we still haven't had uh, all documents uh, that are responsive. And I've said this is just the beginning of an investigation. Uh, They may be called back. Uh, We certainly will be asking for more documents. What often happens in these kind of hearings is uh, afterwards, you sometimes get whistleblowers. That's what happened in big tobacco, uh, who send documents. So uh, this is just the beginning of the process. And I've said from the beginning, all tools are Uh, at our disposal. And uh, we saw it work. I mean, the big oil companies have resisted congressional committee after congressional committee. They showed up now because they know the oversight committee is not one you mess around with. Uh, We have used tools before to compel testimony. Uh, I think unless you're Donald Trump, your odds of uh, evading the committee are not very good.
3: So you bring up big tobacco and these hearings are being compared to that. And one of the things that resulted from the tobacco hearings in 94 was this across the nation response, uh, regardless of, of party, with, with, uh, with relative to governors and so on. Do you feel like in these divisive times, these kinds of hearings are going to have the same effect? Or are you concerned that it will be again held up as partisan?
5: I'm sure the Republicans will try to paint it as partisan, and there is no doubt that in this country we have disagreements on the policies that are needed to tackle the climate crisis and the urgency of acting. But there's one thing that the polling shows, and it surprised me, that Democrats, independents, and Republicans all agree on, and that is they don't like big corporations lying to us. They don't like being misled. And if companies have misled the public they expect those companies to make amends and so the part that i don't think will be partisan at least with the viewing public i'm not saying in the halls of the capital but with the people watching uh will be uh holding these companies accountable uh, for misrepresentations that they have made and continue to make uh and that i do think will break through
3: um Congressman Khanna, I know also that you and your committee have been focused closer to home, focused on the recent oil spill off Huntington Beach and whether federal regulators failed to do their jobs effectively. I'm curious if you see a connection between big oil's disinformation that you're calling them to Congress for tomorrow and the prevalence of oil spills. I mean, we also had that one, that land spill from Chevron in 2019.
5: Right. Well, I wouldn't go so far as to blame uh, the regulators yet on that because we're still doing the investigation and the agencies have been cooperating, so I don't want to make a statement on that until we have all of the facts. But I will say this, that uh, the disinformation has contributed to inaction in Congress, to weakened regulations, to a lack of funding for enforcement, and that has created an environment uh, not just one where we haven't invested sufficiently in renewables and electric vehicles. It's created an environment where uh, we've been too lax in regulations. And that was the goal of these companies. What's sad is they succeeded. You know, for 30 years they succeeded. Now they're a little more clever. They're saying they're for Paris, they're saying they're uh, for a carbon tax, uh, but then their actions aren't consistent with what Paris says. I mean, Paris says you have to reduce oil. Uh, consumption in this country in terms of new oil development. Uh, and we have to reduce that 3 to 4% every year, according to the U.N. report, to comply with Paris. And Exxon actually is increasing oil production. So they put out the ad saying we're for the Paris Agreement, but then they're increasing production for new oil. And those are the types of contradictions that I think they're going to have to answer for tomorrow. And I don't even mind saying this publicly, even if they're listening, because the contradictions are so blatant they they should, I'm sure their lawyers have told them all about this, but they have never had to answer. And I'm just genuinely curious what they're going to say.
3: Well, Congressman Conn, I know you need to leave us to go and take a scheduled vote, but really appreciate hearing from you this morning.
5: Thank you for uh, covering this.
3: Ro U.S. Congress member for California's 17th Congressional District, Silicon Valley, mainly chairman of the House Subcommittee on the Environment, a member of the House Oversight, House Agriculture and House Armed Services Committees. We're talking about tomorrow's House Committee hearing on climate disinformation. And with us still is Amy Westervelt, climate change journalist whose latest project is Rigged, an online archive and podcast about disinformation, also founder and executive editor of Drilled News, a climate accountability news source. I'd also like to... Bringing to the conversation Connor Sheets, an investigative and enterprise reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Connor Sheets, thanks so much for joining us.
6: Hi, thanks for having me.
3: And let me also remind listeners, you can share your thoughts on the hearings and even on the recent Southern California oil spill, which we'll be covering with Connor in just a moment, by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email your comments to forum at kqed.org. Before I go into the uh, oil spill, Amy Westervelt, I did want to just get your reaction to what you heard Representative Khanna say. Clearly, he's focusing on the ways that the oil industry has message and framed climate change and the environmental impacts of fossil fuels. And mm-hmm. I I'm curious what you what how you would answer the question that I put to him about the connection between big oil's disinformation and the prevalence of oil spills. Do you think he he captured that and what other impacts do you think it may have had just in our general understanding of the oil and gas industry.
2: Yeah. Gosh, I'm sorry. I had a (laughs) book fall here. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think he was I think that he was he's dead right that that what they have done over the years. and, And really, this goes way back to long before we started hearing about climate change. The fossil fuel industry has invested more than really any other industry in PR and lobbying um over the course of you know the last century. So um and and their entire focus in doing that was to stop regulation. And as a result, they are one of the least regulated <laughs> industries, although one of the more damaging ones. So I, I think it it's you know it's it's climate disinformation now, but it's been fossil fuel propaganda for a very long time. And that has really kind of created this framework where any environmental issue that they cause is automatically um, looked at as, you know, well, how do we balance this with the economic benefits of oil? Or, you know, we don't really, we don't want to financially damage the oil industry. And, you know, they've been, they've been very successful at kind of, Uh, creating that narrow frame for any environmental problem that they cause, whether it's oil spills or climate change.
3: Well, let's get an update on that oil spill in Huntington Beach, off the coast of Huntington Beach. Connor Sheets, it's been nearly a month since the spill. We know the beaches have reopened and cleanup and testing of the water and wildlife continue and that there was better news that the amount of crude ended up being closer to 25,000 gallons compared to the 140,000 or so initially estimated by the Coast Guard. Have investigators shared anything more about what caused it?
6: Um, so there's been, uh, you know, bits and pieces of information coming out. Um, we continue to hear about this anchor dragging. Um, there's been investigations of different uh, ships uh, that, that you know, have been in the area during key times that um you know that might have caused a dragging of the of the pipeline um and then uh we you know reporters and i think uh, some other observers continue to get more information in the form of documents or um you know from uh, you know permitting and things like that over the years that kind of reveal some additional information but, we, but, but at the end of at the end of the day we really don't have a um, a great update on you know there's not a huge update on what's going on with it we're all still waiting for this uh these various investigations to move forward
1: hmm.
3: you've been looking at the basically the liability question in your reporting who's responsible for this bill and who may ultimately pay and accountability is certainly the theme of the hour what have you learned about holding companies responsible and and what often results from that
6: yeah so i mean if you look back throughout um Throughout recent history, there's a you know there's obviously been a series of oil spills and, and related incidents in California and beyond, and you know often it seems that you know when you look at a Deepwater Horizon spill or something like that, a massive spill that you know BP or a larger company is responsible for, um, they might often have the funds and or insurance coverage or that type of thing to cover the losses um, and the cleanup and all that, or at least a, a major portion of it. But now we're looking at as the larger companies like an Exxon or a BP are divesting from some of their aging infrastructure, such as the Beta Offshore units, where the uh, that were owned by the company Amplify Energy, that uh, the pipeline broke on the. It's the pipeline that connects from that that uh, Beta unit out to um, the port of Long Beach. Um, as you know, as as these smaller companies with less resources and less experience as they buy up this infrastructure. We're seeing. Uh, a a lowered amount of accountability because basically, uh, you know, how do you get money from a company that doesn't have that money? So really what's happening is we have uh, under, you know, when it's happening in many instances, these companies will declare bankruptcy or spin off a smaller shell company. And uh, the government's left holding the bag on, um, on the cleanup.
3: And by government, you also mean by extension taxpayers. Sure. Exactly. Um, And do we have any, indication that Amplify Energy will file for bankruptcy?
6: Yes. So uh, they've said to us, uh, you know, to LA Times that they do not plan to file bankruptcy. And they've said, but, but, you know, watching, looking at how much money they have on hand, they only have about $200 million uh, on hand as of, I mean, they have $200 million in debt. They only had about $20 million on hand as of, uh, I think, their second quarter earnings call. So the amount of money they have, if they're, if they're asked to pay some of these huge fines, I mean, we don't know too much about their insurance, but um, experts we've talked to don't know, you know, don't feel that it's likely they have enough insurance uh, to cover it. So, you know, what are their options in that situation? Um, and at the same time, you know, if you look back at the playbook of any other company that's had this happen in recent years, it's very common that they that they go to either spinning off a company or bankruptcy or some other maneuver to try to avoid uh, financial uh, responsibility.
3: What does this avoidance, do you think, what does the situation lead to? We're talking about it also broadly, right, during this hour. What do you think Californians need to wrestle with, with regard to that?
6: Well, I think Californians, but also Americans, I think a lot of this is federal. I mean, this, uh, these um, offshore drilling platforms were in federal waters, so a lot of this falls to the federal government. But I mean, we need to look at, um, you know, what do we require of these companies as far as maintenance? So a lot of this maintenance, uh, you know, some of the rules have been loosened in recent years, and some of the uh, requirements for maintaining pipelines and aging infrastructure uh, fall to the companies to do themselves, so self-regulation. And you have small under-resourced companies with a financial incentive to Keep returning value to shareholders and uh, and rebuy shares, as is the case with Empire Energy. They've really focused on that. Um, you know, does that influence them in a way uh, that that kind of does that? Uh, does that lead to you know lacks uh, enforcement of, of you know, uh, or does it th- that allow this infrastructure to age without being properly maintained? And also, um, just making sure. That companies that are engaging in this highly dangerous uh, this this work that's very you know potentially very dangerous for the environment, and that they have the resources to uh, you know if they make if some, if the worst case happens like this, uh, that they're able to um, you know that we require them to have the financial resources to cover the losses and uh, and the cleanup, and that they um, and that they actually do so.
3: Well, let me go to caller Margenay in Oakland. Hi, Margenay. Hi. What's on your mind?
7: Um, I'm a, a physician, and I just wanted to bring up that climate change is a public health crisis of much greater magnitude than COVID. The lesson we should have learned from COVID pandemic is that there is no really economic prosperity when public health is at risk. So I want to plead to uh, officials to, when they um, are focusing on policy to put public health at the center of the policy. Hmm. Fossil fuels not only have misled the public in uh, climate change, they're also now focusing on promoting false climate solutions. Carbon trading is one. I appreciate people brought that up. The other one is carbon capture utilization and uh, sequestration technologies. So capturing some of the CO2, the technology that is very energy intensive and very expensive, and to use public dollars to actually promote these technologies, will only increase pollution in frontline communities. We have to put public health and equity at the center of all policy. Um, This is not a real climate solution. Um, These existing pipelines that we have right now, they leak right now. What will, t- what will happen to the CO2 pipelines? There's already a report of a CO2 pipeline that has leaked and has put life of hundreds of people at risk. So, I again, I'm pleading with um, policymakers to put the public health at the center of their policy. They're already paying $20 billion a year as subsidies for fossil fuels. Well, Subsidizing them more for these false climate solutions is not wise.
3: Well, Marjane, thanks for your thoughts. We're hearing from... Listeners, your reactions to attempts to hold fossil the fossil fuel industry responsible for exacerbating climate change. We're also getting an update on the recent Southern California oil spill. And, of course, 866-733-6786 is the number to call to join the conversation with your thoughts. The email address forum at kqed.org or post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook. More of Forum after the break and your calls and comments. Stay with us. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're previewing tomorrow's House Committee hearing on climate disinformation and getting an update on the recent Southern California oil spill with Amy Westervelt, climate journalist whose latest project is Rigged, a podcast about disinformation, also founder and executive editor of Drilled News. Connor Sheets is also with us, investigative and enterprise reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Let us know what your thoughts are in terms of Big Oil's responsibility for Worsening climate change or your thoughts on the comparison between big oil and big tobacco and what effect that could potentially have. If you have any questions about who will be held accountable for the recent Southern California oil spill, you can call us at 866-733-6786. And you can also post your comments online. We're getting a few here. Tom writes, the only similarity between big tobacco and big oil is that corporate executives lie by design. Fossil fuel will change the earth's warming to a point of no return we have yet to see the global devastation to many species besides ourselves for millennia to come alex writes this conversation now is wild and led me to watch the video of the exxon lobbyist stating he is in contact with mansion every week and how they oppose climate change legislation wow in all caps hillary writes one thing i do not understand is how publicly elected officials like Senator Manchin, can retain their connections to industries like the fossil fuel industry while in public service. It seems so corrupt. Amy Westerfeld, I think I'm going to have to ask you to comment on this because we have yet another comment. Anne-Marie writing, when will all the climate change denier politicians who still hold onto their lies be held to account and indeed prosecuted? Any reactions to this and what role that plays?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it is... Um, I, I don't really understand how someone who is earning half a million dollars a year in dividends from a coal business is in charge of deciding whether we act on climate. Joe Manchin. Um, I, I I think that that is a very valid question, and I think it is indicative of a pretty big systemic problem in uh, U.S. politics that that I do think will continue to be an obstacle in in acting on this problem as well. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I I don't see a lot of reform coming down the pipeline on that front, to be honest, you know, and I, and I would point out that, um, not one single Republican is willing to back climate policy either. And that the politic politicization of this issue was done very strategically and very intentionally by, um, you know, a handful of of people in the 90s. So it's not like it was inevitable that this was going to become a politicized issue. Um, It has become one. And I think that that is it's a it continues to be a huge problem.
3: Well, let me go to Andrew in Berkeley. Hi, Andrew.
8: Hi there. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I wanted to mention something that Congress member uh, Kana mentioned. Uh, he he spoke to the importance of Merchants of Doubt, uh, but that book came out 10 years ago. The fossil fuel industry has done significant harm to not only the climate, but also the public understanding and political action to mitigate and adapt to the harm that they helped cause. There really needs to be some sort of punishment for conspiracy to prevent progress in legislation on public threats. So what does holding them accountable for misleading the public actually mean here? Will these hearings have the possibility of opening things up to civil class actions or other items as well?
3: I think that is a central question. And I know, Amy, that you had also been looking into that and talking with Kana about what so-called penalties and so on mean
2: yeah yeah so there's a few things um one is that um this investigation is going to be going on for a year or possibly more and there will be more hearings they're um looking into uh multiple different you know consulting groups and organizations and pr firms that have enabled this along the way as well uh so that's something to keep in mind that it's not you know one and done with this this hearing another is that the um Is that the there are, I don't know, some two dozen cases active in the U.S. courts right now, all of which are um, accusing the oil companies of fraud. Um, Most of them are invoking state consumer protection laws. So there is a a very um, significant chance that what comes out in this hearing and in this investigation would feed into those cases as well. And in most of those cases, the goal is to get the fossil fuel companies to pay into a climate adaptation fund. Um, There's also the polluter pays legislation that has been uh, that has been floated in Congress, which would essentially do the same thing at the federal level, create a fund that the companies pay into that's then used to pay for, uh, you know, a clean energy transition and for some climate adaptation measures. One thing that I asked Kana about is something that uh, Stanford researcher Ben Franta mentioned to me because we were talking about how do we get at this, you know, this system that enables industries like the fossil fuel industry to mislead the public. Mm. And he suggested something that he called information receivership, which um, was, you know, in his mind was sort of, you know, why why should an industry that we know and have documented has has consistently lied to the public and behaved in bad faith, continue to have the ability to do so? So should they be required to um, to limit how they speak about climate change. Um, this, of course, is like a huge First Amendment uh, minefield, but um, it's something I asked Rocana about, and he said, you know, I'm not leaving anything off the table. like if if things come out in these hearings that would require looking at something like that where we actually do um, treat that industry differently than other industries. Maybe maybe that's an option. Um, yes. So, yeah.
3: But as you allude to a corporate speech, getting into that is fraught.
2: Yep, sure is. Yeah. If you think climate change is politicized, wait till we get to that one. Yeah.
3: But I yes. think what you're getting at is what I have read you talk about, which is there is remediation, there is holding companies accountable and then there's preventing The kind of pass that big oil has gotten, and I guess that is one potential avenue. Uh, Let me go to caller Francisco in San Francisco next. Hi, Francisco. Thanks for waiting.
5: Hi. Um, I remember a few years ago uh, when the Republican, uh, they said that uh, that we should uh, give all uh, all our resources in public land to oil companies. Uh, The price of oil is going to go to 99 cents. I'm paying seven dollar in San Francisco, and I want to know why our congressmen not doing anything.
3: Hmm. Francisco, that's thanks. That's... Uh, well, let me go to you on this, Connor Sheets. I mean, you have talked about well, Francisco brings up drilling in public lands. You've talked to also about offshore oil production in California as well, and I know that your focus on accountability and oversight. I mean what can you what can you tell us about what role that plays uh in terms of um you know in terms of keeping tabs on the industry and the prices that Francisco is suffering from
6: yeah I mean uh, I think the issue of the price of gas at the pump uh, and the issue of uh you know what we're talking about with accountability. I mean, they're obviously d- related at some level, but I think, you know, we're looking at individual companies uh, operating in, uh, in California or, or smaller companies like what we've seen with the recent pipeline spill. I mean, that's, I don't know how exactly that would play into that, but I think um, that we do have to look at uh, solutions that, you know, that, that could, the, the problem with uh, some of these bigger, with, with some of these, you know, with, I think as as we look at some of this, the prices going up and and, uh, and and that type of thing. I mean, it's important to look at all the different things we have on the table to make sure um, we're keeping these companies accountable. And you know, like I was talking about earlier, there's a, a culture in these large corporations and some of the smaller ones of you know returning value to shareholders, dividends, buying back shares, um, expanding, and uh, and then at the same time at the pump, we're seeing you know these exorbitant prices and. You know, should there be some kind of regulation of, of that type of thing? And, you know, going back to Amplify Energy, the owner of this pipeline, the first, they, um, you know, they have for years bef- in, in 2017, they went bankrupt because they had two billion dollars of the B of debt. And they went bankrupt and came back out with a lot less debt. And instead of, uh, you know, saving money uh, in cash reserves and uh, making sure that they were doing every, everything they could to, you know, keep prices low for consumers or, you um, or ensure that disasters don't happen. They uh, consistently return dividends to shareholders, bought back large amounts of shares, and you know the bottom line of the company uh, is openly in their shareholder meetings. They say, you know, this is what we're focused on: returning value. And uh, and I think you know, is there a way to rein some of that in as we're seeing you know these expensive gas prices, or as we're seeing these uh, disasters? I, you know, that's going to be a question for Congress to look at.
3: You talk about the culture in companies. What is the culture among federal regulators? You've talked about how they failed to keep tabs on, say, offshore oil drilling and, and you know, they've given permits for public lands.
6: And yeah, no, I can't necessarily speak to the culture of these uh, of these agencies, but I do. Um, you do see, you know, there's attempts to, you know, whenever there's a big spill, let's say the Exxon Valdez or whatnot, uh, you know, you see these attempts to rein in some of the worst practices of these industries. Uh, but then, you know, there's a loosening that happens eventually. And, uh, you know, over the last few years under the, you know, under the Trump administration, there were some things proposed that didn't happen and some things that were loosened a little bit. And, uh, you know, the culture right now is uh, allow these companies, you know, you'll see the um, regulators in some of these uh, records that we've looked at saying, you know, we, we would love to do this, regula- this or that regulation, but it's going to really impact the bottom line of these oil companies. And, you know, I mean, that's probably... The, the reality is, if you regulate a company uh, in certain ways, it's going to cost them more money. But that's, uh, you know, then when they're either that could help avoid some of these environmental catastrophes. It could help, uh, or it could, you know, ensure that when they do happen, that uh, the taxpayers aren't left with the bill.
3: We're talking with Connor Sheets about the Huntington Beach oil spill, and also with. Amy Westervelt about tomorrow's pre uh, about tomorrow's house committee hearing on climate disinformation. We're previewing that right now. You're listening to forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to David in Oakland now. Hi, David.
5: Hi. Um, thanks for this extended coverage of this topic. Um, I was curious if the speakers could address the misinformation that's coming out of some of the constituents within Silicon Valley, uh, particularly Apple and Google, uh, when it comes to the Build Back Better bill and the Business Roundtable's opposition to uh, actually giving up the, the Trump tax cuts, that is really, you know, threatening the the success of the bill that Biden is proposing. And it seems that so much of what's happening in terms of the communication from these companies are still focused on individual behavior change, still kind of focused on CO2 reduction. But there's all of this back, you know, backlog uh, material that's building up in terms of politics that's actually stopping uh, the agenda for the one chance we have at a climate bill.
3: Uh, David, thanks. Let me go to you, Amy Westervelt, on that.
2: Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, I, I actually think it's it's a little bit odd that we are seeing a climate disinformation investigation at the same time that we are seeing Congress investigate Disinformation around you know January sixth and the election with Facebook and um, Twitter and all the tech companies, but we're not connecting the dots on those two things because actually uh, the tech companies have definitely been involved in peddling and supporting climate disinformation too. And I think that you you know you can't just you can't separate the the content from the distribution mechanism, right? Um, and the tech companies in particular are quite bad about saying that they're all for climate action and then behind the scenes, as David alluded to, um, supporting groups that are trying to obstruct climate policy. So I, I do think that um, it would be good to to include those companies. And I actually heard from Kana when I interviewed him that they are planning to bring um, some of his his own constituents to uh, to Congress to talk about climate disinformation too. Um, he he mentioned bringing in the social media company execs. I'm not sure about Apple and Google, but uh, they would be good additions.
3: Well, Brian writes, it's a little silly to think that the media would produce information about the hazards of a climate crisis when majority ownership in media giants overlaps with oil shareholders. No. Amy, I I know you've talked about this, about (laughs) how far these companies have gone to manage how the public views the industry and not just, you know, from their own advertising, right?
2: That's right. Yes. They have had extensive um, campaigns and strategies to, to shape not just, you know, who gets quoted and what media stories and what gets covered, but really to shape how the media functions. I mean, it was... Um, an oil comp- company, Mobile, that created the advertorial back in the 70s. Um, and they are still you know, producing those today with the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, their internal brand studios at those outlets are actually hired by oil companies to produce Massive campaigns for them. So this this intertwining of oil and media it goes quite deep, and um, it goes back a really long a long way. And I do think that actually the the media needs to include itself in accountability. Uh, but I don't think that that means that we shouldn't be talking about it on the media.
3: You know. <laughs> let me go to caller Ken in Oakland. Hi, Ken.
4: Oh, let me let so me grab good. the call, um, Ken. Sorry,
3: could you start over?
8: Yeah. Um, thank you very much for this subject. Um, a number of the callers are calling about uh, uh, to looking to legislation and to Congress for solutions. And my question is, um, how can we expect uh, that from Congress when someone like Joe Manchin is blocking so much of Biden's effort to fund the fight against climate change? Uh, but Manchin is reportedly making money from stock he owns and Exxon uh, I think it's in a blind trust. But nevertheless, he apparently is very supportive of of the oil industry. And apparently his family owns a coal company that he again, you know, I think it's in a blind trust or Mm -hmm. something. But his family is invested in uh, coal. And um, how can we expect Congress to do anything when one man, you know, can can blockade uh, so much of the effort that Biden and the administration are making to fund a way to fight climate change. I'd really like some answers from the panel.
3: Well, uh, we touched on this a bit earlier, but quickly, Amy Westervelt, when we were talking about politicians, um, but do you have any additional thoughts for Ken on that?
2: Yeah, I would just say that, you know, the industry's investment in climate disinformation is not just media and advertising. It's a lot on lobbying too. And I mean, they spend money to get industry-friendly politicians elected for this exact reason. And I do think that it's a huge, huge problem in the political system that needs to be addressed.
3: Well, let me go see if I can squeeze Penny from Santa Rosa. And hi, Penny, quickly join us.
7: Hi, uh, thanks so much. I really appreciate the work that the committee's doing on misinformation. Um, I personally lost my home in the glass fire last year, so I've got like this visceral experience about climate change And these guys, of course, are bad actors, but they're acting, you know, with their own logic about um, making as much money as possible. And since we have less than a decade to turn this around, I'm wondering what kind of creative strategies can be put into place to get them to change their actions and have the most leverage possible. They're such big actors in the, you know, of course, in the carbon emitting world. What can we do using their Motivation of greed to have them do the right thing. So I'm
3: wondering about that. Okay. Well, thanks, Penny. Sorry about your home, um, Connor. One quick thing, and then maybe Amy. One quick thing. We just have 30 seconds.
6: I mean, I think the most important thing is these companies care the most about their bottom lines. So, finding ways to hit them in the uh, in the bank account is probably the best way. I mean, what that exactly means, I'm not an expert on, but I think it has to involve some kind of monetary uh, or even criminal penalties of some kind.
4: Amy.
2: Yeah, I would agree. The the thing they've fought the hardest against for a century is any kind of stick, and and I think that's what we need. We need some kind of financial penalty or um, requirement for them to pay into into a fund that that lets people other than oil executives decide how we're going to fix this.
3: Well, we'll see what happens tomorrow and the ripple effect of that. Thanks, Blanca Torres, our producer for producing this. Thanks to our listeners for listening. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.